Hello, and welcome to Asbury Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Vinny. I am the lead pastor at Asbury. We hope that this podcast will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and I hope that it will also be a bit entertaining as we go through it. Let's dive in. We are nearing the end of our reading plan that takes us through Paul's letters uh, for 60 days. And when we're done with that, uh, beginning on June the 9th, we'll be starting the Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. And I think be wrong, but I think Joshua is included in there. Um, in any case, it is the Old Testament books aside from the prophets. Sorry, I'm actually trying to see if I can't pull that up so I can tell you exactly what that is. Um, so you start on June 9th reading in the book of Genesis. You'll be reading through uh, all of the covenants that God makes with people uh, throughout that time. We're going to end in Deuteronomy. So you're not actually just reading the Torah. You are reading the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, That'll be what's next. But first, we're going to finish through Paul's letters. Now, I'm going to be preaching this coming Sunday on the book of... Titus, but you have read, and I preached this past Sunday on Timothy, um, but you've read, if you're reading along with the plan, you've read plenty of other books because we're now in this section where we're reading books that are only three, four, five chapters long. You're going to get pretty soon to letters that are not not even, they don't even have chapters. They're just a little few paragraphs. And that means we're, we're cruising through these pretty quickly during the week. And so it's a lot of material to cover. But what you'll notice is there's a pretty common theme in all of them, which is talking largely about how to live as Christians. Um, I know so I may hit some other stuff today, but I know for sure I want to talk briefly about some stuff in First Thessalonians, and then we'll talk about the letter to Philemon. It's not Philemon, it's Philemon, um, which is just much more fun to say, in case you're wondering. But um, this will, we'll just talk briefly about these two, then if we have some time, I may dive into some of the other really short little brief letters that we're going through. Um, so let's dive in. First, Thessalonians, written to the church in Thessalonica, which is a region on the northeast coast of Greece. Um, I don't believe it's one city, it's a region, and so kind of like some of his other letters, there's probably multiple churches that he is writing to here, but Paul would have passed through this region after he left Philippi on his way down into Athens and then later Corinth. Um, He probably stopped for a little bit, 
it does seem as though he obviously stopped to plant a church, which takes some time. I don't know off the top of my head how long he would have been there. Um, but he writes two letters to the Thessalonians. There's one passage in 1 Thessalonians that I particularly want to focus on, and it's in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Here we go. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. This is uh, one of the texts that's very commonly used as like a proof text for the idea of, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, I'm going to have to Google a word while I'm on the podcast, y'all. That's embarrassing. The rapture. That's what I'm thinking of. I don't, I don't know how I blanked on that word. Uh, <laughs> um, so this is one of the, the texts that's very commonly used as a proof text for the rapture, um, which is extraordinarily inaccurate. And I'll, I'll tell you right off the bat, there is no biblical support for that idea of the rapture. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that in a minute. Let's, let's talk first about what else is going on here. So first, he talks about those who are asleep. Now, this is a very common way of referring to those who have died uh, amongst the New Testament writers and amongst the early church. And the reason they use this terminology is not because death isn't real, but because they wanted to emphasize that death is not final. That those who have died are really just resting with Jesus. And it implies, and I, and I like this metaphor precisely because it implies this, it implies that they will wake up. It implies that where they are now is not their final destination. Which is important because, of course, they don't believe. They don't believe that heaven is the last place we go. They don't. They, you know, this whole line we have in modern Christianity that, that, that this world is not our home. It's not true. We need to stop saying that. This world is our home. It's broken. It's dirty. It's dysfunctional. But God is going to come and fix it. Heaven is the place we go to be with Jesus while we wait for the resurrection. But it's the resurrection we're waiting for. So they've fallen asleep. They're resting with Jesus, and it's, the resurrection will be the day they wake up. Now, he's encouraging them because there is still a widespread belief in the church at this time, and even with Paul himself, that Jesus is going to come back any day now. They're all expecting that to happen within their lifetimes, and so they're worried about those who died as if they're going to miss it. And Paul's trying to reassure them, no, 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 no. They'll be resurrected as well. 
And he, he says, we declare to you by a word from the Lord. What this means is, God has spoken to Paul. What Paul is saying after that phrase, which is in verse 15, everything after that is something that God has revealed to Paul. Either through a vision, through a spoken word, through inspiration, whatever. What comes next is something that God has revealed directly to Paul. It's a word of knowledge, which is a spiritual gift. Now, let's talk about why this is not about a rapture. Now, remember, the rapture, of course, is the idea that all the faithful will be snatched away from earth before uh, this horrible thousand years of tribulation begin. And there's all kinds of theological problems with that. It's not supported by the Bible at all in any way. It's a gross misreading of the book of Revelation. And they've done that, and then they've gone back, and they've proof-texted through these various things and found what appear to be supports. But they're not. They're not supports. We've talked in the past about how some of the texts in the Gospels that are used as support for the rapture are actually references to Jesus Christ's ascension, which happens at the end of the Gospels, and they are callbacks to images from the book of Daniel. What's happening here is... Paul is talking about the return of Christ. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. And you'll notice, by the way, he never talks about Jesus going back up to heaven after that. This is the second coming. Now, we get confused because it talks about being caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, what's going on here? In the ancient world, if Caesar, the emperor, the, the king of kings, the prince of peace, yes, that's what they called him, the, the ruler of the world, if he was coming to visit your city, there would be a delegation of all of the local dignitaries the wealthiest businessmen, the, the noble families, the, the uh, government officials, the military leaders, all the most important people. And then just a crowd of, of, I don't know how to phrase it, worshippers is probably too strong, but a crowd of fans maybe, who would all leave the city and go to meet Caesar on the road and escort him into town. Happened everywhere he went. It was the expectation. What Paul is describing here is the triumphant royal arrival of the Lord of all creation coming into his kingdom. He's saying, you and I, the, those who are in Christ, whether we are dead or alive, We'll go out to meet him and escort him in, just like you would do with Caesar now. We're going to go do that with Jesus, and we will escort him into his kingdom as part of the triumphant royal procession. But this is not an image of us being snatched away from the earth so God can rain fire and destruction down upon it. This is an image of us escorting the king into his kingdom, celebrating with him, 
proclaiming his goodness, his victory, his enthronement to all creation. That's what's going to happen. Jesus will come and be enthroned on the world and all will be made new. He's encouraging the Thessalonians that that even those who have died will get to partake in that because the resurrection will precede the royal arrival of Jesus. And it's interesting that you know, Paul never mentions um, resurrection for the unrighteous, for those who don't die in Christ. Now we have, um, sort of as a core part of Christian belief, uh, and certainly of Methodist belief, this concept that, um, I bet I can pull it up here. I'm going to pull up the exact wording of how, we, of how it has been traditionally been phrased. Um, but we have a belief that everyone, it's resurrected. And I'm trying to pull up, because the exact wording of it I think is really interesting. Um, so the, the exact phrasing of it is, the righteous rise to eternal life and the wicked to eternal condemnation. Now, a lot of speculation has been made about that, what exactly that looks like. Um, Paul never once mentions the resurrection of the wicked. We actually pull that from the Gospels and from the book of Revelation. It's not even really totally clear if Paul thought that was going to happen to people who were wicked. He really was more focused on the righteous. But, but it is mentioned in, in all the Gospels, in uh Matthew and John, and in the book of Revelation, so maybe not all the Gospels, but, but two out of four is pretty good. Uh, it's mentioned in several places in, in Matthew. Uh, if you want to look it up, it's Matthew 13, 24 through 30, 36 through 43, and then chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. It's in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 25 through 29. And it's in Revelation, chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, chapter 21, 1 through 8, and chapter 22, 1 through 5. So we have scripture references that, that hint that everyone experiences resurrection. It's just that the righteous rise to eternal life with God in the new creation and the wicked are condemned. And um, despite what a lot of people tell you, the Bible is actually somewhat vague on what this eternal condemnation is going to look like. Um all the language that's used for it is picture language. It's imagery, it's metaphor, it's simile. Um, Jesus d uses this image of a burning lake of fire, um, but that's pretty clearly not meant to be a literal image. It's meant to be a descriptive thing uh, designed to, to sort of put a shocking and terrifying image into your heart and mind as you... As you Think about the fate of the wicked. 
So we don't, this is by the way why I don't spend a whole lot of time talking about that, because the Bible doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about the fate of the wicked, and it uses this really vague imagery. Um, so we don't know what happens to people who, who don't uh, have faith in Jesus when they die. We don't know for sure, but we can surmise it's not good. If you want to read a book that I think probably deals with the topic of uh, heaven and hell better than anything else that has ever been written outside of scripture, uh, pick up a copy of C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, which is a really short little read. And it's a, it's an, it's a, it's a novel, it's fiction, but it's really short, it's really easy to read. Um, it probably, I think it really is the single best book that has ever explored that topic, largely because, not, not because it gives you like this, you know, really detailed scientific description of what hell is going to be like, but because it explores the, the human condition and the condition of our, of the hearts of people who reject Christ at the end. Um, and I think it just does a beautiful job of helping us to understand what's really going on. I'm not going to say much more about it. Um, because I want you to, I really want you to read the book. I really do. I think it, I think it's a phenomenal book. It has a lot of incredible insights into the human heart and the human condition. Um, and I think it also, just the way it examines, it, 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 the the things about God that it brings to light by examining the human condition, um, really helped me personally a lot in in wrestling with this idea of. Um, eternal life and eternal condemnation and, and um, recon reconciling those concepts with what I believe about God. So uh, I'm going to highly encourage you to read it. If you've got teenagers, give it to them and read it. it it's, it's, they can handle it. It's not, it's not written at a high level and it's not disturbing or anything like that. Um, it's C.S. Lewis. You know, if they can read Narnia, they can read this. Uh, but it's just a phenomenal book. So check that out. If you can. We're going to move on now. I'm going to talk about the letter to Philemon. Not Philemon or Philemon. Very short letter. Written to a man named Philemon. And a woman who probably is his wife, Aphia. And then um, the church in his house. So Philemon... As a house church, he is a church leader. He is, um, the best way to describe it is like he's probably this, a blend of two roles that we are familiar with. He's probably a blend of a small group leader and a pastor because he's got this house church that meets in his house. He also appears to be a slave owner. He has a slave, Onesimus. who appears to have escaped. And he has gone and met with Paul in prison. The two have formed a bond. And Paul is doing this weird thing where he's urging Onesimus to go back to Philemon But he's also urging Philemon to set Onesimus free. This is not the path you or I would take, right? We would just tell him, never go back. You're a free man. Slavery is wrong. 
Now, Paul clearly, clearly thinks that slavery is, is a bad thing. No question there. Let's talk about slavery in biblical times. It's not quite the same thing as the slavery that was happening in the United States up until the Civil War. That form of slavery was uniquely evil. It was uh, a, a degree of evil and cruelty that the world had really not seen before. Slavery in Roman times was, was different. Now, we should also emphasize that up, uh, up until the moment that William Wilberforce convinced the, the government of England to abolish the slave trade in England, um, no one, literally no one, anywhere in the world, thought slavery was something that needed to be eradicated. It was just part of the economy. No one would have thought twice about it. Now I would argue that that is the work of the devil, pulling the wool over people's eyes. Um, and, and what Wilberforce did is, of course, he found texts in the Bible that seem to indicate that actually from the very beginning God has been against slavery. Now there are laws in the Old Testament that dictate what you can and cannot do with slaves. God seems to have accepted that his people were going to own slaves. Um, although there are also laws that uh, that discourage the ownership of slaves. Right, every every few years, all the slaves must be set free. If a slave escapes, you're not to make any attempt to catch him. He's earned his freedom. That sort of thing. Um, But slavery in the ancient world was different. For one thing, slavery in the ancient world was almost always the result of debt. If you couldn't pay off your debt, you or your children would be sold into slavery until the debt was considered repaid. Now, quite often, um, you would eventually repay the debt and then you'd be set free. Sometimes that didn't happen. Sometimes you would sell your children into slavery and never see them again, and the debt would be considered forgiven. Slaves were also uh, sometimes prisoners of war, soldiers who were captured on the battlefield and then forced into slavery, but almost always debt. Almost always debt. Which meant you didn't have um, race-based slavery. You didn't have um, you, you didn't have this thing happening where people assumed that slaves were less than human and therefore didn't have rights. Um, there were there were laws even in the Roman Empire governing the treatment of slaves, and it was generally well enforced. Uh, of course, a slave who escaped from his master could not be expected to have those same rights. They were usually punished quite harshly. Um, but nonetheless it, it was different you also you, you just it's not quite the same system of slavery which is one of the reasons why Paul is not is okay uh, sending Onesimus back to Philemon but the other thing is that Paul wants Philemon to emancipate this slave 
says, look, I'm sending him back to you. I want you to set him free. It's better for everyone if you just set him free. He wants his freedom. Um, and yet there's also clearly some level of, of genuine um, friendship, perhaps, between Philemon and Onesimus that may have been strained. Something has happened which has caused Onesimus to run off. But Paul seems to think if Philemon emancipates Onesimus that that will heal the relationship and then they'll have a brother in Christ gained back. His primary concern is not the institution of slavery or the eradication of it. His primary concern is the relationship between these two men and their status within the church and their status before Christ. So this is a letter which was commonly abused in, in support of slavery in the U.S. Some people still have a bit of a, uh, a, a bit of a problem with it. Because they think it's in support of slavery, and it's, it's just not. It's just not. It, it's, it's not even really about slavery. It's about these two men. It's about these two men who Paul wants to see restored to each other. And Paul indicates that, look, if you set him free, you get him back, and he's more than a servant, he's a brother in Christ. Which is better than a servant. Now, after Philemon, you get Hebrews. Hebrews is included in our Paul's letters reading plan, and I'm going to preach on it after I preach on Titus. Um, but frankly, Hebrews was almost certainly not written by Paul. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. So I presume it's just in there for fun, because uh, it's a good letter. So that's what we've got coming up. Um, we're reading through, you know, this week we are in, if you're just reading along, um, we're in 1 Timothy this week. We'll be into Titus next week, and then we'll get into Philemon and Hebrews as we get into the beginning of June. We'll wrap up Hebrews on June the 8th. That's all for this week, folks. Next week, we'll be back with a podcast on Hebrews because it's a long enough book that I can do a podcast and a sermon about it. Until then, God bless.